Amen. Well, we're going to sing a doxology right now, which is uh, by John Newton. May the grace of Christ our Savior and the Father's boundless love. It's from uh, the tunes uh, Sussex. We sing it to, and we can sing it together. And uh, it's a good one that you can begin to put in your hearts and maybe sing during the week. We'll hear the tune and we'll sing together. turn to Isaiah chapter 22, Isaiah 22, and as you turn in there, um, we're going to give thanks to the Lord for his ongoing provision for us, Isaiah 22. Our Heavenly Father, we want to give you thanks, and it's a joy to give you thanks for your provision for us as a church. We thank you for the privilege of giving our tithes and offerings to you. And for those who've never encountered in giving consistently and faithfully, we pray you'd, you'd help them. But Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to give to you something of our substance. And we worship your, you, Lord, for your ongoing provision for us as a church. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 22. I'll just take my jacket off. So tonight we'll finish off, really, not Isaiah, but the first third of the book of Isaiah, um, which is actually quite an achievement. And we're seeing that in the book of Isaiah, how much of this is cited in the New Testament by the apostles and by Christ. And we're going to read chapter 22, and um, then I'll announce the title. But let's hear the word of God in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 1. It says, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. Uh, what do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together without the bow they, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me, let me weep bitter tears. 
Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts is a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, uh, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Verse 12, In that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for boldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock, Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently. O oh, you strong man, he will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind him uh, with your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah." And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him uh, the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. 
The title of the sermon tonight is, is The Valley of Vision, which refers to Jerusalem. Uh, when I first began to prepare this sermon, The Valley of Vision, I thought, oh, this is exciting. I've got a Puritan book on my shelf called The Valley of Vision, which is a, a book by the Banner of Truth full of all kinds of Puritan prayers. And it's a very useful book, so I thought this will be an exciting chapter. Except The Valley of Vision here, uh, when you begin to read about it in its context, is more like a, a valley that's a nightmare. God's vision here is one of judgment upon Jerusalem and Judah. So before I, I give the headings for us, just a reminder that in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says regarding Scripture, it says all things in Scripture are not equally plain in themselves, nor equally clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so uh, clearly propounded. So everything that we need for salvation and for godliness in the Bible is made absolutely clear and plain. But if you're like me, the longer you go on as a Christian, the harder the Bible becomes uh, to try and find the intended meaning of Scripture. Now, this Valley of Vision, which begins in chapter 22, the oracle concerning the Valley of Vision, actually is penetrating in the judgments that God's got for it. And it actually turns out to be a, a nightmare for, for Judah, a deserved nightmare for their sinfulness. But it's not a valley of redemptive vision. It's one of sober judgment upon the people of God there in the Old Testament church. And it's not an easy chapter to handle. Uh, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't preach from it. We shouldn't just be preaching passages and verses that we love and just the ones we understand. We need the whole counsel of God. Um, and as, as I'll say, as we go through the book of Isaiah, we need to be very conscious that the book of Isaiah especially was a book cited by Jesus, cited by the apostles, cited by Paul especially, very much. So therefore, it gets our attention for all the right reasons. And we've got three headings for us tonight. Let's see if you can remember those headings. The first one is, the valley of vision is Jerusalem. That's the first heading. The valley of vision is Jerusalem. Secondly, the heading is partying but no repentance. Now, I know we don't find the word partying in there, but I've, that's my heading, partying but no repentance. And thirdly, that Eliakim, this servant that was raised up, is a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ, pointing us to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we'll look at the end that these two verses that are found in Isaiah 22, which then find their way into the New Testament. The first one is from Isaiah 22:13, and that's cited by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:32. And then the second one is in Isaiah 22:22, 22, and that's found in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8. So the first heading we've got for us tonight is the Valley of Vision. And the word vision we could translate. Uh, revelation. It's a revelation of God. 
uh, that comes for the people of God. And specifically, this is not about Babylon, that Babylon will be fallen. This is about the Old Testament church where the covenant line was. This is for uh, Jerusalem. Now, as we see at the beginning of these oracles here, it says the oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. And last week we looked at Babylon, and it says the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. And we're asking ourselves, well, why doesn't it just simply say the oracle concerning Jerusalem? For some reason, they're given cryptic titles. And you may ask the question, well, why is that? And the, my answer is, I don't know. I don't know the answer why. And I think it's good to be able to say, if you don't know something, I don't know. And I don't know why they've got cryptic titles. But we find out in the chapter later on, uh, for example, in verse 10, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem. And we find out that it's referring to Jerusalem. And so when we first begin to read this chapter, for example, the first verse, what do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. You think, well, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with going on to the housetops. They lived in flat uh, roofed houses then. They were not like what we have here in Britain. They were largely flat roofs. And you think there's, there's nothing wrong with going up onto the housetop, is there? Surely. Except that we find out later on that they were going up onto the housetops to have wild partying without God, without any interest in God whatsoever. And so we'll come back to that. But if we uh, see in chapter 20 and verse 21, um, it says... There's a prophecy that builds up. First, there's judgment that's, that's given to Jerusalem. And then in 2021, it says, And in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe. And we'll come back to that. But despite their rebellion, despite their, their sinfulness, despite their rejecting the gospel, the Lord says, I'm going to raise up Eliakim. And so the Lord's grace comes again and again and again. Like we heard this morning, Peter, when he went to the house of Cornelius, he preached the gospel. And yet we have Protestant churches and so-called Reformed churches today that say, oh, don't, don't, don't give the offer of the gospel in case the non-elect get saved. Well, that's such, a, such an idea is ridiculous. Here we see here, God's not so much concerned whether they're going to be elect or non-elect. He's concerned that he will be faithfully represented before the people. And Eliakim is raised up for them. But crunch verses for us in this first heading, the Valley of Vision, is in verse 12 and verse 14. And if you want to read this chapter later this week, it builds up to a climax here in verse 12. So it starts off in verse 1. They're going onto their house roofs and so forth. All seems quite innocent. But then in 12 to 14, we find out there's nothing innocent about what they're doing on those roofs. It says here, In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for boldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. 
Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Just think about this picture for a moment. They're going onto their housetops and, and they're just partying. And God's saying, you're, you're living a life without God, without any reference to the covenant God, and yet you're spending your time drinking wine. It's not saying that drinking wine is wrong, but they were just living a life of drunkenness. And their motto was, was this, it says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul the Apostle takes this verse out from Isaiah 22, which is spoken in reference not to, you know, the, to Babylon. It's, it's spoken in reference to the professing people of God. And Paul the Apostle takes that motto, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And then he applies it in 1 Corinthians 15 and says people who are in the world in Rome, that's how they live. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We have no purpose. And if you reject God, you'll have no purpose. What's the point in, in, in living? If, if, there's, if there's no God, you just do what you want. And, but when people are in the church and they do this, and that's exactly what happened in Jerusalem. And Martin Lloyd-Jones made a very, very important point in the, I don't know, the 1950s. I wasn't around then. I wasn't born then. But he, he made this point. He says, if you stick with the Bible, you will always be contemporary. If you stick with the Bible, you will always be contemporary. We, don't, we shouldn't be trying to build churches to be contemporary. Have you noticed that's a, a fairly newish word in evangelicalism in the last 15 years? People talk, you know, we need contemporary worship. We need contemporary preaching. We need contemporary goodness knows what. But if we stick with the Bible, we will be contemporary. Sadly, the word, word contemporary gets actually used for saying what we need to, to do is to have worldliness in the church. And the church doesn't need worldliness. Here we see, to be contemporary, that Judah and Jerusalem, their motto was, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, if you'll forgive me for a moment, but... I think about my own nation and, and the nation that you're living in, the United Kingdom, England. This seems to be the motto of people today. Would you agree? We had the Olympics recently, and we, we got unparalleled numbers of golds and silver and bronze. And, and I can say, well, that's wonderful that we get all these medals. But what will happen to people when they die and they face Christ as judge? And it's not wrong to watch certain sports and like the Olympics, but how many times did I, did I see the, you know, people giving reports and, and they'd ask them a question and, and virtually none of the British athletes, there may have been some, but virtually none of them would give glory to God. They would just say, you know, it just goes to prove if you work hard enough, you can achieve anything you want. That's just not true whatsoever. And then often they would go to the families and friends of, of medal winners and they'd say let's go live now to I don't know where it would Twickenham let's go let's go live to North Yorkshire where someone's just won the gold in the swim pool or whatever and and it would be everything that would be focused on is that families and friends would be partying drinking bunting would be plastered all over partying places and you think that's our own nation God is calling us uh, as he was then 
to a time of weeping and mourning, a time of weeping for our own spiritual condition, as he called them to do there. And yet, the very opposite, when people are living far from God, their motto is not one of spiritual soberness. It's living for themselves, drinking and partying and so on. So here's the Valley of Vision, which moves us to our second heading, which I've already given an indication to, which is partying, but no repentance. Partying, but no repentance. And we do give thanks, don't we, uh, in our own generation. Every time there's an announcement of a marriage of a, of, a, of a man marrying a woman, we rejoice in this institution that God gave. But we live in a day in our own nation where people often don't give any reference to God whatsoever. And that's exactly what was happening here where it says in verse 13, um, <clears throat> let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There was partying going on in Judah. People who'd had the prophets, they'd had the covenant line, they had Isaiah preaching to them. And yet there is no repentance. No repentance. And then we get a very sobering verse in verse 14. And it says this, The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Imagine that. God has revealed himself to the ears of Isaiah. And it's this, Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord of hosts. Now what does that mean? This iniquity, this partying without repentance, without giving any attention to God, just living, eating, drinking, celebrating, always looking for the next opportunity to gather together, not to give reference to God, but just to enjoy themselves. What will be the outcome of such godless living? And the Lord says here, there will be a day of reckoning and it says, surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. And here is the sobering reality that there will be a day of reckoning for all human beings. Not simply for those who, who've had the opportunity to, to come and hear the gospel, such as in Britain, but for all men and women in every tribe and tongue and nation. And what it says here, surely this iniquity, he said, Isaiah preaches to Judah, will not be atoned for until you die. What does that mean? It means if it's not atoned for before you die, it will be atoned for after you die. What does that mean? It means that God will have judgment. That either our sins will be atoned for through the blood of Jesus and washed away, or the atonement will happen by eternal judgment on our sinfulness. And Jesus has very sobering words, and he speaks of everlasting punishment as a place of outer darkness. Outer darkness. You imagine if it was, it's not dark yet, it will be in a few months' time. We'll look outside the windows in our evening service and and, and it, it, it really will be an evening service. It'll be dark outside. And if we turn the lights off and kept the lights off, it would begin to become uncomfortable after a while. 
We're not wired to just sit there in the dark. But imagine a place of judgment which Jesus says is outer darkness. That those people who die in their sins will be judged. And so what a sobering thing it is. Here we are. We're preaching the word of God. We're preaching the gospel. We continue to pray. But hell is never a doctrine that Christians should ever joke about. We don't have a motto, you know, that we preach to people, you either turn or you'll burn. No, 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 no. If we really knew the word of God, we would never use such phrases. You'll either turn or burn. We would be filled with a sense of fear and trembling and thankfulness for those who are Christians to be delivered from everlasting punishment. But the Lord gives us in Isaiah 22 this valley of vision. In this valley, this low place that the, the church there are brought to, the Lord gives this vision to Isaiah that if you do not repent, as Jesus said, you will die in your sins. Dying in your sins is the worst thing that could happen to anybody. But people don't have to die in their sins. They can turn from their sins and turn to Christ. Jesus said this in John 8, 23. He said to them, that was the Pharisees, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And Jesus preached that to the Old Testament church, the same as Isaiah is preaching to them here. But did the Pharisees repent? Most of them didn't. They refused the gospel. Well, our third and last heading from Isaiah 22, the Valley of Vision, is, is found in verse 20. It's this man called Eliakim, and we'll finish off with this man, Eliakim. Eliakim really is a type of Christ. What's a type of Christ? Someone who, who's in the scriptures, who you look to, and you see something of Christ. They're not Christ, they're a, they're a sinner like Joseph, like Moses, like Elijah, and like Eliakim, but they at least point us to Christ until he finally comes. In chapter 20, uh, 20 to 20, in that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. So we find more about him, he's a priest. And he's actually found during the time of Hezekiah. And if you remember, I'll just read the first verse of Isaiah. It says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So at the end of Isaiah's ministry, there's a king called Hezekiah, and it was during his reign that Isaiah also preached. So this prophecy, this valley of vision to Jerusalem, is towards the end of Isaiah's ministry. Imagine that. Isaiah has now had this sovereign call from God. Remember that in Isaiah 6. This, these seraphim circling around. And God saying to him, who will go for us? And Isaiah is, is brought very low himself and... And, and he says, here am I, send me. And at the end of his ministry and life, what would we expect? 
would we expect revival after revival after revival? Well, the Lord said to him that that's not going to happen, that the stump will be left, the elect will be there. And so we see towards the end of his life, he says this, in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who's found in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 26, during the king Hezekiah. So he's actually found elsewhere in scripture. I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Listen to this in verse 22. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open, and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house, and they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue and every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. We'll just stop there for a moment. God says, I will raise up this man Eliakim, which is exactly what happens. The Lord metaphorically says, I will give him a key, the key of David. That's where the covenant line will be. And then this key, what do keys do? Keys open doors and they close doors. And the Lord says, for this man, this priest Eliakim, he says, and, and he shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I think the, the import of this message to Eliakim is this, is that he will open the doors of the temple and the doors of the temple will never be shut while ever Eliakim is in place. Because we find out that the king before, he actually closed the doors of the temple. He actually closed up public worship and the people of God were not bothered about the worship being closed up because they were so running after false idols. And the Lord says here to Eliakim, there will this type of Christ, there'll be a season, there'll be a season when God will raise up Eliakim and he will keep the doors of the temple open. And the Lord says in verse 23, and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place and he will become a throne of honor. We think, what a wonderful thing this is. Then we think about Jesus. Remember Jesus said to Peter, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And it's the same imagery. He gives Peter, not literally, he doesn't literally give him a set of keys and say, but they're spiritual keys that through the preaching of the gospel, and we saw this morning as, he, as Peter preached the gospel in the house of Cornelius, the Holy Spirit took the keys in Peter's hand, as it were, and opened the doors of people's hearts who got saved. What a wonderful picture this is that's taken up in the New Testament for us, the idea of holding the keys of the kingdom. It's a beautiful picture. And here we see for Eliakim, it says he will become, in verse 23, I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. If you've been camping, I know some people like camping, some people don't like camping. I understand both sides of, you know, the, 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 the desire, as it were. But, you know, you need, you need when you're camping, you get some big winds that will blow through. You need some secure tent pegs. Otherwise, you may wake up in the middle of the night and find you're not camping anymore. You're, 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 you're camping in the open air. But the Lord says here in 23, I will fasten him 
like a peg in a secure place. And here we see that this man is a type of Christ, but all he is is a type of Christ pointing to Christ, but is not Christ. Because Christ is not like a tent peg. Jesus is a rock, not a tent peg. And Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So he, he, Christ and God, the eternal one, is a rock that cannot be shaken. But as we come to a close this evening, this man Eliakim, even though he's a type of Christ and he's given this position, and he doesn't escape the coming judgment upon Judah. He doesn't escape it. And it says in verse 25, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off. For the Lord has spoken. As we close this evening, what can we learn from this? Is that the Lord raises up this man, Eliakim, but in the end, the sinfulness of Judah, in the end, will overtake all of Judah. You know the story of King Canute? You know, I don't know whether it's a true story, but standing on a throne by the sea and, and commanding the sea not to come in. And I don't know if you, like me, uh, have been on the beach and of someone like Mabel Thorpe or somewhere as a kid, and I thought, I'm going to try this. So I, I, I tried to command the sea as a kid, to not come in and you know what happened it came in and I had to flee back to the shore but the point in more seriousness is this is that though we may be faithful to the Lord in our own nation that doesn't mean that we won't face the judgment of God that may or may not come upon the church in this nation because of large parts rejecting Jesus Christ we have the Methodist Church who in just the last few weeks have pretty much, I'm not sure if there's much more that they can abandon, but they've just abandoned truth even further that they will marry uh, anybody who comes to them and, and really turn away from the Word of God. And you think, well, is there anything more that they can keep on doing? And you can say, well, I'm not a member of the Methodist Church. If that's true, you're not. But we as a Presbyterian church, we are not an island that's divorced from the crazy antics of the professing church in our nation. And what we learn about Eliakim in that day when judgment comes, and judgment comes a number of years later when the Babylonians come, and the judgment comes upon the whole of the church. And so we need to be faithful to the Lord, but to be realistic that we really do need repentance and beg God for repentance to come never mind about the world we want to pray for repentance in the professing church that the salt would become salty again and may God help us to have open eyes to walk with soberness before the Lord and as we close these new covenant applications which I've mentioned that we praise God for the only begotten son who is not a peg but is an eternal rock that cannot be shaken. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, this motto, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, sadly, 
is actually taken from Isaiah in reference to the people of God, and now Paul uses it regarding people actually even outside of the church. But may that may not be true of you and I. May, may you and I, may we keep following the Lord all the days of our lives. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, what was applied to Eliakim, the key of David, is now applied to Christ and to that church, Philadelphia. Well, praise God for Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who is not a peg that was fastened, but an eternal rock which cannot be shaken. Amen.